In an article uh, by Al Mohler, 2019 article, entitled The Increasing Social Cost of Complementarianism, Dr. Moeller says this, he says, We live in an age where steadfast faithfulness to biblical conviction increasingly exacts a social cost. Churches and entire denominations feel the mounting pressure of an increasingly secular culture, capitulate on fundamental doctrines and core teachings of the Christian faith, especially doctrines that intersect with the LGBTQ revolution. Church after church continues to sacrifice theological fidelity in the name of cultural relevance. Where you find a church, however, you find unwavering commitment to the Word of God, especially in those moments where the culture demands theological surrender. Complementarianism is one of these doctrinal commitments under severe scrutiny. To be clear, complementarian theology is a secondary issue for Christians, You can reject complementarianism and be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, committed to the gospel and the expansion of Christ's kingdom around the world. While it is secondary, second-tier issues can often become first-tier issues. Rejecting complementarian theology may lead to a rejection of biblical authority, inerrancy, and the infallibility of God's word. Indeed, complementarianism represents a right reading of the word of God. Men and women equally bear the image of God, yet they are distinct in their roles as men seek to glorify God in biblical masculinity, while women glorify God through biblical femininity. Complementarians, however, must face the reality of this secular world and the impact of second-wave feminism on the church and the broader culture. To hold to complementarian theology will increasingly be more costly in the coming years. The social pressure against complementarian theology manifests in at least two ways. First, complementarianism is perceived as an oppressive ideology, promoting male superiority. The second pressure we face is the accusation that complementarian theology encourages sexual abuse. The first pressure, excuse me, to the first pressure, Churches must make it abundantly clear that complementarianism is not grounded in male superiority. Indeed, holding to a male superiority directly contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible and demeans the glory of the image of God equally displayed by men and women. If complementarians have failed to demonstrate a joyful biblical theology that begins with the celebration of the goodness of what God has created, shame on us. If we fail to articulate a vision of complementarianism that proclaims the rightness of that order and the beauty of humanity as made in God's image with the glory of the assignments given to men and women, then shame on us. Complementarian theology, rightly articulated and exemplified, celebrates the glory of manhood and womanhood. To the second pressure, we must be equally honest and steadfast. We must honestly affirm that distortions of complementarian theology can, and in some cases, has led to sexual abuse. Evil men can use the argument of complementarianism to fuel their own narcissistic sexual and physical inclinations. Any good and right thing can be twisted and contorted and used for vile means. Given this reality, there is a pressure to surrender complementarianism altogether. But true complementarian theology that is rightly lived to the glory of God celebrates women as made in the image of God to his glory. It is not a tool of oppression, but a glorious doctrine of God's grace. As pastors and church leaders face this cultural pressure, there is no time to be wasted in the support of any more, excuse me, any mere ism for its own sake. Instead, the church has the responsibility to receive, to celebrate, to teach, to preach, and to apply the Word of God and all that it contains. I argue that an affirmation of what the Scripture teaches, beginning in the very first chapters of the Bible, will require a definition and defense of complementarianism, not as complementarianism, but as God's revealed truth. I think that's a crucial issue. Martin Luther rightly said that we have to defend the word of God at every point at which it's being attacked. Eventually, the church must stand clearly upon the comprehensiveness of biblical truth, no matter the social costs. We've been in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we have sort of raised up matters pertaining to 
this view or this understanding that we believe rises up clearly out of the text of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 being prominent in that discussion, that a complementarian view of men and women is, is endemic or flows out of God's created design and God's created order. And those that would seek to undermine that or seek to view that differently are often falling prey to social or cultural pressures or ideas that sort of infiltrated their thinking and become sort of uh, cancerous to a pure and undevoted commitment to biblical truth. That's maybe an optimistic way to look at it. At worst, it is demonic in its orientation and it's oriented around trying to completely decimate any notion of biblical home and family life and societal, institutional, foundational realities of what constitutes a thriving society for men and women and most importantly for children. There's a sinister side to this and whether or not those that would embrace something other than the biblical vision of manhood and womanhood, whether they're aware of it or not, a view that is anything less than what God has said it should be and what God has, in fact, designed men and women to be and to work out is undermining the very fabric of human life and existence in any kind of social context, whether it be in the church or in society or anywhere else. And so we've been sitting in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a number of weeks dealing very extensively with it. But in the last two weeks, or I guess this past week and then this week, we've been kind of taking a little bit of a, a sidetrack into looking at some of the, the matters that spring up out of this passage that require a little more investigation, maybe a little more uh, exploration, if you will. And one of, the, one of the things that I wanted to kind of extrapolate a little bit more fully that we didn't do as we were kind of walking through this in a sort of systematic way in recent weeks was this matter of, of what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, and how that lines up with, or maybe from a certain perspective, does not line up with what the Apostle Paul expressly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34b, the second part of verse, 30, excuse me, verse 33b, the second half of verse 33, through verse 35 in chapter 14. In the same letter, you have what some would point to as the Apostle Paul explicitly contradicting his own teaching about this matter of men and women and their roles and responsibilities under the rubric, the design, divine intention of authority and submission, or in the context of chapter 11, headship and submission. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 and 5 simply says this, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in the second half of verse 33 and going through verse 35, and Paul, in the very same letter to the very same group of people in Corinth, says this, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So you have in these two verses, in the very same letter, and even in the very same neighborhood of the same letter, if you will. As we said, chapter 11 through chapter 14 is really a block of instruction about life and ministry in the body of Christ and what that is to look like and how that is to be played out in the context of the gathered assembly for worship. And in these two distinct verses, these two distinct texts, you have in chapter 11 what appears to be the Apostle Paul stating that women are able to, allowed to, permitted to pray and prophesy as long as they do it adhering to a particular custom 
in this context, the custom of having their head covered. And then in chapter 14, it is very straightforward and explicit. The women should keep silent in the churches. And so there are those that would raise this up as a contradiction, as something problematic. And in fact, anytime you come to something like this, if there are competing views, competing camps, if you will, competing interpretive camps around a particular issue in the life of the church, a particular point of application in the life of the church, you can bet that there will be someone in those camps who will seize upon such an apparent contradiction and exploit it to better advocate their position, to, pro- to proffer what they would see as a, a stronger argument for their particular view. And so that's indeed the case. Denny Burke, professor of biblical studies at Boyce College, wrote about this. He says, The alleged contradiction has led some interpreters to suggest that verses 14, excuse me, that, verse, that chapter 14, verses 34 to 35 were not really written by Paul. I mean, that's one way to, to deal with it, right? It's like, yeah, it's not Paul. Uh, okay. They argue that some scribe must have come along after Paul and slipped these verses into Paul's letter. The only problem with this view is that every single Greek manuscript manuscript of 1 Corinthians that we have includes these verses. There are a handful of manuscripts in which the verses appear after verse 40, but that is not evidence that verses 34 to 35 aren't original to Paul. It's evidence that some scribes sought to preserve the flow of Paul's argument about prophecy by moving these two verses to the end. They were wrong to do that, but we would be doing worse than they did to rip them out of the text altogether. No, these verses are original to Paul. Does that mean we have a contradiction with chapter 11? Commentators like Richard Hayes, an egalitarian uh, person, uh, advocate, Richard Hayes would argue that there is, in fact, a clear contradiction between chapters 11 and 14. Hayes writes, quote, With respect to the issue of women's public leadership, there are good theological reasons to insist that we should be guided by Paul's vision of Christian worship, in which the gifts of the Spirit are given to all members of the church, men and women alike, for the building up of the community. The few New Testament texts that seek to silence women such as 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, should not be allowed to override this vision. This should just not be allowed. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, we, We don't allow it, Paul. Sorry. Hayes not only posits a contradiction within Scripture, but he also argues that readers need to choose which Scripture is right and which is wrong. For Hayes, the egalitarianism of 1 Corinthians 11 is clearly preferable to the subordination of women in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For that reason, he embraces the former and rejects the latter scripture as an error. There are those that would also even argue, in fact, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, This is a reference to, that Hayes had in his quotation of one of these verses that we should just not allow this to override the grander vision of an egalitarian view. We'll just start, I guess, in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Again, just a reminder, this is the Apostle Paul instructing Timothy, who is now a pastor and an elder at the church at Ephesus. And there are, there are issues within the church at Ephesus at this point that, that Timothy is needing some guidance and some encouragement and some instruction on how to, how to deal with it. It says, uh, he, so he's telling them that, the, that this is how and we, and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings will be made for all the people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 
I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Then verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is very explicit. I can see why if you hold to a compliment, an egalitarian position, you'd kind of want to throw this out. What do you do with this? And really, in the same vein as what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul roots his argument for these divine distinctions between men and women and how they're to play out in the life of the church, he roots it both in the nature of God's relationship within the Godhead. Remember that in chapter 3, about submission and headship, with a reference to Christ and his submission to God. But then he also further elaborates the rootedness of it in the created design or the created order by referencing Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and how God made men and women. Well, here, Paul does the same thing as he's instructing Timothy in how he is to shepherd and to teach and to train the the, the believers in Ephesus and also the uh, the fellow elders. He roots it again in creation. It's, It's sort of you can't get around that more transcendent sort of foundation of, of this understanding of the roles of men and women. And there are those in the egalitarian camp who would actually go so far as to not just say that we need to figure out how to sort of set aside or diminish or at, at minimum reinterpret, reimagine what Paul is saying in, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, There are those that would argue that the pastoral epistles aren't even Pauline. They weren't even written by Paul. This is is an anomaly. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is to just let you know that what what Albert Moeller is talking about in the article that I just read, ultimately what we get down to is we get down to principles of biblical interpretation and a, a, a belief in the authority and sufficiency and errancy of Scripture. This particular matter of complementarianism versus egalitarianism and the passages that surround it almost invariably foist the the advocates of each camp into questions not about how men and women should function in society or in the church or how they should relate to one another, but it thrusts these arguments into the, the domain of how we view the scriptures themselves, how we interpret the scriptures themselves what we deem to be authoritative versus not authoritative, and who has the right or the authority to make those kinds of judgments. That's where this ends up going around this very issue. That's why I'm bringing this particular point of conflict to the forefront. This is a, this is a discussion not to hammer home you know, my patriarchal you know, complementarian view because I just want to make sure that my wife understands this and she's here today and I just need to make sure she gets it. This really gets to the point of how we understand and rightly interpret Scripture writ large across the board. And by the way, this is nothing new. Anyone who comes under authority that they don't like, the easy path for them is to write off that authority as authoritative. We do this with authority figures in our own lives. We talked about authority and submission relationships in the context of the normal ebb and flow of our experience in work environments, where we might find ourselves in a a situation where we're we're working for a particular boss that by most measures, if you kind of gather people together, they'd say, "That, that man or lady does not know what they're doing. I don't know how they got in that position. We look at them and we go, seriously, come on, right? I mean, all of us probably at one point or another, have had that kind of experience where you're just looking at the person who's in charge, who's making the calls, and you're going, how did that happen? But nevertheless, 
If you're wise, and I would even say if you're godly and virtuous, you still recognize the responsibility to submit to that authority that the Lord's placed in your life. You practice submission. You don't cast aside the God-established authority. You don't just say, you know, they're, they're making a mistake or they're inept or they don't know what they're doing. And so therefore, now guess what? Guess who's authority? who has the authority now? I'm rising myself up and I'm casting that authority figure off because that's much easier for me. That makes much more sense to me because I'm measuring everything by myself and my own standard. That's what we do with Scripture. That's what people do with Scripture. It's the same kind of activity. It's just that you're doing it with written text and using pr- principles of biblical interpretation rather than just kind of making an argument in your own mind about what you're going to cast off or who you're going to cast off. Children do it with parents, right, all the time. They don't just say, I disagree with you. They say, you know, at some point I can't wait until uh, you don't have authority over them. They, they want to cast the authority off. Right? Because they don't like it. They don't like what the, that authority, how that authority is being exerted over them. It's the same fundamental principle. This kind of understanding should rapidly point us to the heart of these matters. The heart of these matters, as I've said earlier on in this study, is not some kind of problem with God's design. The problem is always with us. We do not want to submit to what God has said. That is always a problem. We always grapple with that. We're constantly struggling with that. We are constantly fighting to mortify our flesh, even as believers, and to walk in godliness. So that's what's happening around this particular passage of Scripture, or these these particular passages of Scripture, consistently. So we come back to the, the text themselves, and what we see here is what is, you know, an alleged contradiction by some, and I would admit that you could, if you just sort of didn't think about or, or pay careful attention to what's obvious in the larger context of these, these passages, you could, in, a, in sort of a cavalier, maybe even a shallow or uncareful reading of it, you could say, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Something's not right there. So let's just kind of unpack this a little bit in a very cursory way with the understanding, just, just kind of fair warning, that we're not in our study yet in 1 Corinthians 14. So when we get there, we're going we're gonna to go much further and much deeper in our work through these passages. But just for the sake of us looking at the, the contradiction, the apparent contradiction here, and comparing and looking at, at these, two, these two passages, uh, chapter 11 and chapter 14, let's just kind of think through what we're actually seeing here. As we've worked through this section in chapter 11, obviously we've, we've spent weeks uh, discussing these matters and working through all the various uh, verses here and trying to understand what the Apostle Paul is instructing and teaching and what the implications are for us as individual believers and as a church. But what has been clear in and through this study is that Paul is seeking to uh, advance and uphold the divine distinctions between men and women, particularly distinctions of authority and submission. The whole argument begins with this statement about headship, right? And as we said, headship without submission is a meaningless concept. So implicit in the discussion is authority, headship, and submission. All right? So, so these divine distinctions, this is what the Apostle Paul is seeking to advance and uphold. And how those divine distinctions are demonstrated publicly in the life of the local church. So it's the reality, the innate reality of these divine distinctions that men and women, if, they're, if they haven't seared their consciences, if they haven't sort of completely suppressed the truth and unrighteousness so much so that they're completely self-deceived, men and women, believers and unbelievers alike, know these things to one degree or another because it's part of our created design. It requires a denial of how God made us to come up with a different conclusion. That's what the Apostle Paul is arguing here. And that's what he's trying to uphold. And the, the, the implication is that there is, there is something going on in the life of the Corinthian church. And we, we've talked about this uh, you know, at, other, at other times. That would indicate that there was a certain throwing off of these distinctions, a certain casting aside of these distinctions. And as is always the case, there was a 
blurring of the lines. There was an obscuring of these rightful roles and responsibilities. And because the Apostle Paul understood that this had to do not just with men and women and what their preferences were and how they related to one another or what roles and responsibilities they were able to take on in the life of the church, this had to do with the glory of God as it was reflected in and through the people of God as they gathered. The the gravity of this situation for the Apostle Paul cannot be understated, overstated. It can be understated, often is. Can't be overstated. So this is the thrust of chapter 11. The overall thrust is holding up these divine distinctions and even more particularly, the public, clear, consistent demonstration of these distinctions. Thus, you get that reflected in this custom of head coverings as an outward indication, an outward symbol, an observable sort of adornment, if you will, that represents these distinctions. Okay. The point of chapter 11, verse 5, is not Paul's tacit endorsement of women as prophets and preachers. See, this is where the egalitarian would like to go. This is what Richard Hayes was arguing for in Denny Burke's article, that we we should go to places like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, and recognize that the Apostle Paul is advocating for all, all people, all of God's people, men and women alike, who are gifted to be able to demonstrate and exercise those gifts freely in the context of the church. They would go to this particular verse, chapter 11, verse 5, which simply says, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. They would say that that is Paul's statement of the validity of women being able to exercise the gift of prophecy or preaching or teaching in the life of the church. There it is right there. Why else would Paul have to give this instruction if he's not assuming that that is what's to be expected in the life of the church? So the first point we have to recognize, from again, from a, a careful and thoughtful biblical interpretive perspective, is that in no way can you see verse 5 Uh, the thrust of it as Paul's endorsement of women as prophets or preachers in the church. Rather, this is Paul's condemnation of women who dishonor the divine design by throwing off the symbol of submission. Like, you're taking a verse, and you're you're a verse that's that's really a condemnation of women not honoring God's divine design, And you're saying this is Paul's tacit endorsement of them being able to preach and teach just like men do. Do you see how it comes down to principles of careful interpretation? Not of, you know, do we, how do we get along? How do men and women relate to each other? And how do we make sure that men don't become sexual abusers because they have this authority and women aren't oppressed? I mean, he's saying, look, there's a, there's a rebuke here in a sense, an implied rebuke or at least an exhortation. That there is, there is shame associated with women who would cast off a symbol of their divine role and responsibility to be demonstrating submission in the male-female relationship in the life, in the life of the church. This is Paul's sort of condemnation of that throwing off of that distinction, this head-covering distinction. And if and when they do engage in prayer or prophecy in the church. So... Again, I'm not saying that he's not, he's not indicating that women would pray and prophesy in the life of the church. I'm merely making the point that that's not Paul's main point. You see that? That's not his main point. Now, implicit in Paul's instruction <clears throat> is an assumption that there are appropriate occasions and settings in the church in which women can, as John MacArthur says in his commentary, men and women can talk to God about people, including themselves, praying, or talk to people about God, prophesying. That's how he sort of simply characterizes these two activities. And women can do this while still demonstrating faithful submission to the authority of spiritual men in the church. And most importantly, to their husbands if they're married. 
The point here is that even if there is an appropriate setting or context or occasion where a woman would, in particular, prophesy, to use the New Testament terminology here, that in no way should that activity be done in such a way that it violates or undermines God's divine design. Even if it were to happen, even if there were an occasion, it it shouldn't be conducted in such a way that it undermines God's divine design of of authority and submission. That's, That's the principle that's in view here as well. So even if you are, so if you think about the the nature of sort of an equal rights kind of mindset as it pertains to men and women in the life of the church, those that are arguing for a chapter 11 verse 5 interpretation, this is Paul's endorsement, at least in one place in scripture, that women can preach and teach just like men can. This is the, the working out of that is not in accord with what the Apostle Paul is actually instructing here. The working out of that is that women are ordained as preachers and teachers in the life of the church, and they stand up in front of the congregation and they preach and teach in the same way and in the same context, in the same kind of setting as men do. So even the working out of that position is in conflict with the instruction that the Apostle Paul is giving, even if we were to assume that he is advocating for an appropriate time and place that that women could prophesy and pray. Do you see what what we're saying here? Like, it is is such a a, a sort of a a breaking down and pulling apart of the, the interpretive understanding and intent of Scripture to, to go from, this is Paul's tacit endorsement, Ordain women, women stand in front of men and women and preach and teach just like men do. That's what it, that's what it means. The, the interpretive leap is vast. It's, a, and it's an enormous leap away from what the, the clear and direct and contextually settled instruction of the Apostle Paul is here. So when you start to see, again, when you start to see people make those kinds of leaps in their application, flags, discerning flags should be going off in your mind. Something's not right here. Without even grappling with the difficulty of the issues at hand, without even raising up the specter of bad examples of male headship or bad experiences of female submission, before you even get to that, okay, the point is, is that when you see these kinds of interpretive leaps being taking place, go back to the text of Scripture to understand what is it, what is it saying and what is meant by what it's saying. How do we understand this in its original context and think through it carefully without leaping to a conclusion that agrees with my culturally informed convictions? This is what happens over and over and over again. This is what Dr. Moeller was speaking to the, the cultural pressure to cave in certain areas and to compromise in certain areas, particularly in this area, has grown significant and likely will only get more and more and more substantial. In fact, again, I'm kind of, kind of broadening this a little bit, but the, the more I've read about this, the more you see that there are divisions even within complementarian views to sort of reimagine that and its application in the life of the church, and really to uh, sort of cast aspersions at old people like me, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I part of, I'm part of an older set which doesn't really understand male and female dynamics in the modern era. So yes, complementarianism, yes, let's try to have fidelity to the scriptures, but there's even aspersions being cast at old fuddy-duddies like you know, John Piper and Wayne Grudem and these old guys from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by you know, more enlightened complementarians. So that's, that's another thing that, that sets off alarms in my mind. I mean, I, I'm like, listen, I, I, the older I get, the more I like and trust old people. Let's just put it that way. <clears throat> 
And when I say trust, like and trust old people, I'm talking about people from centuries before. I'm talking about really old and dead, now at home with the Lord people kind of thing. So at any rate, the long and the short of it is is that there's no shortage of sort of consternation around this, even within sort of semi-like-minded camps. But when you start talking about people who are advocating for something other than God's original design of male headship and female submission, uh, you're really getting into areas of uh, erroneous and at best heretical biblical interpretation. That if you apply those principles of interpretation across the board, errors are going to abound and they are going to mount a full front assault on other fundamental doctrines of Scripture. <clears throat> now, so, so, so again, praying and prophesying women are to, if, if there is a, an occasion for that in the life of the gathered church, it is not to be done in such a way that it, it throws off this divine, this, these divine distinctions and the public and open manifestation of those divine distinctions. So if a woman were to pray or to prophesy in the life of the church, it should be clear to all that she is still a woman who's, who's submitting to the authorities in her life, her husband, elders, that kind of thing. It should not be done in such a way that there is like, here, I'm woman, hear me roar kind of thing or whatever, you know. And that's, that's, again, that's the Apostle Paul's instruction here. You, it's hard to miss, I would say. It's hard to miss that that's what he's, that's what he's driving at. Now, when, when the Apostle Paul arrives at chapter 14, the setting and the instruction in that passage, in that section, is getting much more specific to the purpose and, and the manifestation or use of certain gifts in the church and the orderly and purposeful use of them in the church. In the context of the gathered assembly, I would say. The formal gathered assembly for worship and, and instruction. And in that specific context, the instruction that's flowing out of Paul's you know, view and even correction of what's going on in the specific formally gathered assembly, there, there are prohibitions for women speaking, clearly, in chapter 14 that we read. Because... In so doing, the women would be dishonoring God's design for men and women in the church. So, in the specific instruction of chapter 14, what the Apostle Paul, again, is concerned about is not oppressing women. It's about their actions bringing dishonor to to the glory of God that in some ways works itself out or puts the glory of God on display in the ways that men and women fulfill their designed roles and responsibilities of headship and submission in the life of the church. In in other words, by default, in this particular context, for women to begin to speak out in certain ways would necessarily undermine that divine distinction. That's, that's the, the, the nature of what Paul's instructing here. Again, Denny Burke from his article says this, Paul is commanding the women to keep silent in a certain setting during the judgment of prophecies. Remember what Paul said, just said in verses 29 and then verse 32. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And then verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Burke goes on to say, prophets are not only supposed to prophesy, but also to evaluate other prophecies to see whether they are true. Why? Because the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. A prophet must submit to the evaluation of other prophets. And then, and then here's the argument for, for the, the restriction on women speaking in this particular setting. He says, but this creates a potential problem for the headship principle. What happens if a husband prophesies and his wife is a prophet as well? Is the husband supposed to be subject to his wife during the judgment of prophecies? Are husbands and wives supposed to suspend male headship during corporate worship? 
Paul's answer to that question is a clear no. Paul does not want anything to happen during corporate worship that would upset the headship principle that he so carefully exhorted them to obey in 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16. For that reason, he enjoins women in this context to refrain from the judgment of prophecies. He's not commanding an absolute silence on the part of women. Indeed, he has already revealed that they are in fact praying and prophesying. He does, however, command them to be silent whenever prophecies are being judged, and the women are to do so out of deference to male headship. So in other words, as I said, in that particular context, if a woman were to begin to speak out in a judgment of another man's prophecy, that would be throwing off, in essence, God's desire and design for the distinctions of headship and submission to be on display in the life of the church. I can put this in a much simpler and even less uh, substantive situation, but you know, as I stand up here and teach, I can assure you, when I teach, my wife and even my son who's in this class, they don't necessarily sit there and go, wow, he nailed that. Or, man, the way he said that, that was just, that was, I mean, I, like, I don't, I don't, and my ride home does not consist of fawning adoration <laughs> of how phenomenal I wove this lesson together. I mean, that's just not how it works. But if my wife, for example, were to begin to criticize me or to just speak her mind, even if what she is saying is inarguably true, objectively true, if she were to do that in the context of public worship, would she or would she not be undermining this divine distinction principle? Of course she would. I would all, it would, she'd also be making me mad, and that would be a problem. You know, we'd, get, we'd get in an argument and be all kinds of trouble. But do you understand? I mean, do you understand the more profound principle? I mean, sim- it's kind of simple, you know, when you just kind of put it in a more, sip- a more simple frame. It's kind of obvious, right? So, so this is, this is the, the, the nature of the instruction. The, again, the overarching principle is the glory of God being revealed as his people are gathered for worship. That as, a, as, a, as a gathered worshiping assembly and community and fellowship... We are not just called to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We are not just called to be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. But as we gather, we are the body of the living Christ. Like, that's how we are identified. And as you look at this this entire discussion in chapters 12, 13, and 14, of paramount concern on the part of the Apostle Paul, is that, unbelievers might come into their midst and get a completely wrong idea about what it is they're seeing. And so we are called, as we gather, to manifest the very nature and character and glory of God. That is to be part of the the sort of divine and actually wondrous effect of God's people gathering with pure hearts and clean hands, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, that they wouldn't only sense the presence of God, be encouraged by the Spirit affirming all the truth that's being sung about and spoken of, but that the very act of that corporate gathering would in a profound way manifest God's character and nature to other people. So that that becomes a point of great encouragement amongst the fellowship, but also a potential means of tremendous and powerful testimony to an unbeliever who might be in your midst. And we get hung up on, you know, what about my rights? Or what about that guy who's just a terrible leader? You see what I'm saying? Like, we, we so diminish the, the, the grand instruction in what the Apostle Paul is most fundamentally concerned about here. Of course, there are practical workings out. I mean, he's talking about head coverings in chapter 11, for crying out loud. There there are practical implications that we have to grapple with. But we don't want to grapple with those and assume that that's the main thing. The main thing is the glory of God. 
the clarity of that demonstration of who God is as he is seen and revealed in and through our fellowship and our worship and our commitment to submission to the authority of his word and our desire to serve one another. And and as I've said before, when you think about this whole matter of authority and submission, um, first of all, as we've said, there is no such thing as authority and submission of men and women that doesn't also include elements of mutual submission. It, it, it's impossible for a man to exercise godly authority either in the home with his wife or in the context of the church, in his leadership there. There is no way for a man to faithfully do that and to never demonstrate submission himself. Submissiveness as the Apostle Paul stated in verse 3 of chapter 11, is part of the way that Christ relates to God the Father. So if we are to be like Christ, if what the Apostle Paul says later, to have the mind of Christ, if we are to have the mind of Christ, then submissiveness is characteristic of every believer. So there there is no demonstration, there is no embodiment of male authority, biblically, spiritually, that does not carry with it submissiveness itself. And this is, this is where we go wrong, too. We, we set up these secular or even godless ideas about authority and submission, how it's, what it's supposed to look like, and then we start measuring everything based upon that erroneous model. The other thing I would say is that in the same way that uh, ungodly examples never undermine the truthfulness and authority of what God has said or designed in this whole area, uh, we can't set those ungodly examples aside as, as they have impact on the faithful testimony of the church. So when we think about this matter of authority and submission, and even efforts on the part of some to try to create biblical interpretive conflicts within even one of the Apostle Paul's letters to sort of undermine the authority of one passage over another, even when we encounter things like that, we have to realize that we can't sort of dig our heels in and be unreflective on the problems that we face and that we exhibit as men and women in the life of the church. The responsibilities, to take it a a step further, of men in being faithful, in demonstrating their God-designed role of headship or authority, is so substantial in its impact and importance in the life of the church. That to carry that in petty, earthbound kinds of ways is a disaster over and over again as it works its way out. Any man who understands the true nature, the true stewardship of the authority that God has given him, carries that authority, that mantle of authority, with a tremendous amount of humility and utter and complete dependence upon God himself to provide what is needed to fulfill that. Any man that carries around this sense of headship with a kind of brash bravado is not doing that before the face of God, is not understanding the mantle of leadership authority that has been given to them by God and what that means in the life of the church. There there is a a weightiness to that kind of responsibility that naturally, if if it's understood in its depths, naturally results in humility. Like before the face of God, God, help me. I can't do this apart from you. I cannot fulfill what you have called me to apart from your constant supply and your constant guidance. 
So anytime we see these examples of headship that are characterized by, you know, bravado and I'm the man or any kind of attitudinal sort of display of, of sort of like authoritarianism, that is not the biblical model at all. It can't be. You can't stand before the face of God with that kind of hubris as you contemplate the responsibility that he has given to you as a man created in his image. You can't. It's impossible. So again, another flag to be paying attention to. I would say, ladies, uh, please do not submit, unless you are married, do not submit to that kind of model. Find better models to submit to. And by the way, if you ever see that working itself out amongst the, the leadership in the church, you have recourse. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, you gather up some witnesses, and you come before the other elders, and you call an elder out. I, 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 I appeal to you. Do not ever allow yourself to go with sort of some conviction that there is someone in the life of this church who has been appointed with spiritual authority over you And what you believe you are seeing demonstrated consistently and persistently is a model of authority and leadership and headship that is ungodly. Do not let that go without accountability. You do have recourse. You're you're called upon to hold your leaders accountable to a standard. Now, what we're going to find as we move forward through this text and we move, move actually further into... 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and actually begin to study them within the context of the frame of spiritual gifts, we are going to begin to discuss what is prophecy, really? And what is the Apostle Paul speaking about? And how are we to understand the outworking of that particular gift in the life of the church? And that will also, I think, provide maybe a little more balance and clarity to how we understand 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but that's going to have to be for another day. Join me in prayer and we'll be dismissed.